0: Hello and welcome to SAE Tomorrow Today. I'm your host, Grayson Brulte. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to have Bob Galleon, owner Galleon Energy. On today's episode, Bob and I discuss the current state of the global electric vehicle market. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Bob.
1: Thank you, Grayson. I do appreciate you uh, inviting me to be on
0: SAE Tomorrow Today. I'm super excited to have you here because batteries are one of the hottest markets in the world. You turn on Bloomberg. They're talking about lithium. They're talking about cobalt. You turn on CNBC. Same thing. And Bob, you have 46 years of experience in electrification, I repeat, 46 years of experience. you retired as the CTO of CATL, the largest battery manufacturer in the world. What are your thoughts on the current state electric vehicle market?
1: Well, Grayson, it's a great question. Just last week, we had the North American Battery Show in Novi, Michigan. I think we were all astounded by the number of people that attended this show. In checking with the Informa Markets people that host that show, they mentioned they had printed over 13,000 badges for people entering both the exhibition hall and the uh, conference. I was fortunate to be the chairman of the battery show again this year for the 10th straight year. And the the growth in this industry is phenomenal. We could have looked back 10 years ago and say, we only had a few hundred people at the show. Now we're wondering whether we've outgrown the suburban showcase there in Novi and uh, whether or not we need to find another uh, um, venue in the future years because we've grown so much. But on a a global front, electrification is uh, running like a freight train. As we know, the Chinese market is booming. European market is booming. United States is starting to spool up. Electrification is here, and I believe it's here to stay this time. It's unlike that of what we did in the 1990s when we had the EV1 and the Ford Ranger and some of the Toyota and Honda products that were becoming electrified. This time it's sticking. And the reason it's sticking is uh, there are so many people around the world believing that there is a environmental issue that needs to be addressed in global warming and uh, electrification is one of those technologies that can help address this phenomena of global warming by reducing the amount of CO2 pollutants. And there are several other things that we can talk about and address later in our conversation here that uh, may be of importance to you. So let me turn it back to you.
0: Now that the market's sticking, it brings a smile on my face. I, I, I recently read several biographies on Thomas Edison and he worked on electric vehicle and that was something that he was always trying to perfect and his good friend Henry Ford and they were trying to get it to go. So perhaps Mr. Edison and Mr. Ford are sitting down smiling as electrification is sticking.
1: Uh-huh. Well, it's interesting, Grayson, you bring this up because I believe it was in twenty ten or twenty eleven I did a paper for SAE and gave it at the World Congress about the history of electric vehicles. In the early uh, 1900s, uh, around 1901 to 1903, I believe was the time frame. there were equal numbers of horse-drawn carriages, electric cars, and steam-propelled vehicles. And all of a sudden there's this uh, magic uh, solution that came along called gasoline. So then the uh, petroleum industry really got cranking up because the dispatchability of petroleum-based fuel was far easier than uh, electricity because at that time the power grid really was uh, not there. So electrification kind of stalled out in the early 1900s for the mere fact that we did not have generation capacity, we did not have a grid infrastructure that could support electrification, but gasoline could be re- refined and, and uh, put into vehicles to create these, the, the, the whole market around internal combustion engines. During the battery show last week, I had a chance to meet with the CEO of Our Next Energy, who did a book, and you should get your hands on that book. It's a historical perspective of electric vehicles in the Detroit area. It's a really nice piece of work, and I congratulated him on a good book
0: books are fantastic, and going back to the early days of electrification and electric vehicles, one could make the argument the chemistry wasn't perfected. Edison tried it, they tried it in in Oxford in the UK, and they finally had that chemistry breakthrough in Oxford. If the chemistry was achieved where we are today, would that have altered the course of history, in your opinion?
1: Well, it could have, but unlikely, because at that time, again, we did not have great energy generation capacity at that time in the early 19th century. The grid infrastructure would not have supported the kind of charging requirements. It would have taken a long time to charge the cars with the grid as it was contrived at that time. Today, we have ultra high voltage uh, grid lines that crisscross across America, in China, Europe. These 300 54 or 345 megawatt lines that run across our country are easily converted down to a a voltage that can be used for charging cars. So I think electrified vehicles probably would not have become a reality back in the early 1900s because of capacity and because of a lack of grid infrastructure, which is not uncommon to what we're facing again today. (laughs) And this is uh, one of the key uh, problems that were discussed last week at the Battery Show is how do we mitigate this uh, huge infrastructure requirement of uh, charging electric vehicles once we get tens of thousands of them hanging on the grid.
0: I want to put some some numbers to uh, give some our listeners context to what you just described because the grid is a big issue. On Tuesday, September 6th, the California independent operator of the energy grid, it hit record peak demand of 52,061 megawatts. They had to send out alerts, please stop charging, please stop doing various things using electricity. California's banning any new gasoline powered cars by 2035. How will that grid handle that influx? Will it just be alerts going out or what's gonna have to be done to shore up the grid?
1: Many companies across our great nation is looking at utilizing batteries as part of the remediation, if you will, of the grid. Our grid infrastructure in many cities is old and dilapidated. And in order for you to charge electric cars, positioning batteries, juxtaposition within the, I'll call it microgrid network of the major grid network, allows you to use batteries to charge batteries. So you take a bigger battery to charge a car battery. And because these battery systems are stationary, they don't require you to move them around. Various technologies can be used. It could be a lead acid battery, could be a flow battery, could be lithium batteries. But these batteries strung throughout the grid network right next to these high-powered Level 2 and Level 3 chargers can help with the grid infrastructure in such a way that we don't collapse the grid. It's just going to take a few years to spool that effort up.
0: How are we going to get around the the rising cost of commodities and specialty chemicals? We've seen the price increases in lithium. We've seen what what Ford's doing with the F-150 Lightning by increasing it by $8,500 a vehicle, and they're specifically citing the cost of raw materials. If you're a large, let's call it, Bob's Energy Company, and you're operating you 20,000, 30,000 customers. How are you going to get the, the the CapEx to afford to invest in those batteries with the rising cost to, to shore up the grid?
1: Well, Grayson, there's two factors in that. Number one, it's the mining. And number two, it's the processing. Because it's those two key factors that really drive the price of the commodity-based markets for these metals. So let me give you an example. Not long ago, the uh, mining industry started looking at underwater mining. And there's a handful of companies out there today that are actually doing underwater mining, but they're using a dredging operation, which is not necessarily the best thing for the planet in terms of stirring up the uh, muck that it's at the bottom of the ocean because it, it's damaging. It can create uh, problems for life forms that live down in the deep sea waters. But there are some mining companies that are looking at a different one, a different approach, and that is to pick up billions of these nodules that are laying on the ocean bed floor that with responsible technologies using certain type of robots, these robots can go down to the ocean bed floor and they can look at these nodules and determine if there's any life forms around them, and it does this without stirring up the silt on the bottom of the ocean. It does, art, uses artificial intelligence and a camera system. The name of that company is Impossible Mining. I'm, I'm really uh, tickled because they had a really good article in Time Magazine re- recently and it shows how this technology works. So the robot will go down, get within a few feet of the ocean bed floor, it uses artificial intelligence with the camera and it says, oh, that, that nodule has uh, life form on it. I can't touch it. That one doesn't. I can pick that one up. And it does this without stirring up the, the material that's on the ocean bed floor in a very responsible way because at those subterranean, or subwater levels, you know, more than a couple thousand feet below the ocean surface, it's dark and it's extremely cold. It's only one to two degrees above freezing, but it's uh, almost pitch dark down there because the sunlight can't uh, penetrate through the mass of material that's between the uh, top of the ocean and the bottom of the ocean. But in any event, these nodules are rich in cobalt, nickel, copper, magnesium, and other elements such as rare earths that are needed for manufacturing permanent magnets. So one of the things that I'm doing uh, during my consulting gigs is to work with people that want to know more about this technology. And this is what I call responsible mining. And uh, many of the car companies have made public comments that they never want to do underwater mining because it's so damaging to the environment. But they've never seen this technology like uh, i've seen this technology so this is a major new revolution now the second part of that is the um, way that you take those raw materials from the ocean bed floor and you convert them into active materials that's called processing china's got relatively speaking over 70 or 80 percent depending upon the metal that you're you're uh, talking about into processing capability around the entire globe and most of those ores are coming from either subterranean mines or surface strip mining operations. So this new revolution of processing can include biological degradation, which is a whole lot cleaner than utilizing either chemical or electrical degradation of the ores and converting them into useful materials that can be turned into active materials for batteries. Now, along with that, there's other competing technologies and other battery industry. I'm working on no less than eight different electrochemical systems in my day-to-day consulting role in the uh, market. So hopefully that answers your question.
0: Staying on the the responsible mining topic, I read about it a lot. You hear about it a lot. And there's a common source of frustration, anger, uncertainty, and it goes to one part of the world, the DRC commonly referred to as the Congo is that since that I I believe and you probably know better than me that that's one of the largest deposits of cobalt in the world are we starting to see more responsible mining in the Congo are we seeing that getting cleaned up as the cobalt works its way into the automotive supply chain
1: absolutely there's not a OEM on the planet or in the consumer electronics industry today that will endorse any kind of mining that requires either children labor or slave labor to produce the cobalt that they're using in their batteries. They're also finding a lot of other deposits of cobalt around the world. Uh, I've looked at several papers that talk about this but don't have it memorized, but clearly the cobalt in the Congo is, is a source, and some companies are actually figuring out how to make it a responsible mined material in the Congo without using child or slave labor.
0: Is the transparency being driven by the global movement towards ESG? Is that where that's coming from? If we're going to buy your car or invest in your stock, you have to become transparent on your supply chain?
1: Yes, that's part of it. And it's very interesting you bring this up, Grayson, because many of the battery companies that I'm working with and the OEMs that I'm working with mandate that a certain percentage of all of the batteries that are produced have a certain percent content of electricity that's produced by renewable energy so to your point these car companies and the governments from around the world want to have more responsible battery production because if you look back no more than four or five years ago this wasn't even a hot topic but today it's at the top of everybody's agenda
0: we covered responsible mining, and then if I'm sitting there in the C-suite at a large global OEM, I'm thinking a lot about political uncertainty, and, and I really think a lot about Chile. It's the, the youngest uh, president of any country, recently just gave a speech at the at the UN General Assembly, and I have concerns where he is publicly threatening to shut down the Atacama Desert with the mines. If, if, if that does happen, what impact is that going to have on, on the global OEMs if that supply of lithium from Chile gets shut off essentially overnight?
1: Well, maybe many of the listeners on on this uh, podcast don't know that there's lots of lithium in other places around the world. It's just a matter of how we get to it. Obviously, the Salton Sea is one area in uh, the desert southwest of the United States. There's also a huge vein of salt water that's under the North America uh, continent plate, runs from roughly Arkansas all the way down into Louisiana. that has got lots and lots of lithium down there And there's certain companies that are figuring out how to use uh, ionic membranes and other techniques to separate the lithium from the other elements that are in that huge aquifer that has this uh, saline content uh, material underground. So there's lots of other approaches to getting the lithium that we need. And it's not just about the lithium, Grayson, because there's other battery technologies that we're, we're seeing uh, emerge today that in the future may serve as, an, let's say, an, a competing industry or a competing technology or amplifies the use of lithium batteries. It wasn't long ago, uh, maybe less than a year ago, that uh, CATL, my old alma mater, talked about a dual battery system in one battery pack using sodium ion batteries and lithium ion batteries in the same battery pack utilizing the same battery management system. It is possible. In fact, there's a company in the Detroit area right now that's working on that same technology approach.
0: If we pull out the lithium, as you mentioned, in the United States and Salton Sea is a very big deposit, Berkshire Hathaway Renewable Energies is looking into it and so other companies. Well, the EPA and and the government regulations allow refining to refine the minerals we saw Texas recently applied for, I'm sorry, Tesla recently applied for one in Texas. Well, we start to see this refining boom and when I think of refining boom, I'm sorry, I'm going to go back in the history with you. I think of Standard Oil because when Rockefeller got all the refineries and bundled them all up together, that really started Standard Oil.
1: Well, let's, let's put it this way that um, I have some strong opinions about how our federal government and some of the different agencies can either help or hinder the growth of uh, electrification in our country. Uh, different competing sectors within our government may try to prevent a new mine from getting opened as an example because of a concern over uh, an off or a mining tailing or something that could have some chemicals that if not properly remediated could uh, cause some environmental pollution. Uh, there's some agencies in our federal government say well you cannot open that mine because it threatens a very specific species of wildlife that could be threatened from extinction so there's lots of gotchas as i say in the industry that can prevent a good let's say mine from being open because of one thing or another i think during last week's uh, at the opening of the battery show, I mentioned the ologies that have to you have to go through in opening a new mine. Those ologies include hydrological studies, archaeological studies, geological studies. It's uh, just a whole bunch of different things that have to be studied in, before you can even open a mine, because it typically takes. And this is this is from my colleagues in the mining industry. It takes roughly ten years to open a new mine. So my big question to many of my colleagues in the industry is. How will you build batteries if you don't have those raw materials for a decade in our own country? You obviously have to rely on other sources that are either offshore or a different technology to uh, be able to make batteries for electric cars.
0: It's it's not feasible currently today. I'm going to throw a round number out. I'm just adding up in my head the gigafactories have been announced. You're over, you're over $20 billion U.S. currency. And there's a, a Bloomberg New Energy forecast I want to uh, put into context here. It's projected by 2025, the United States will have 41,754 metric tons of refining capacity, while China will have over a million by then. They're putting political pressure, but yet we don't have the refining capacity. We, we do not have the factories. It just seems that it's a typical, you shot yourself in the foot, not really understanding that it's a global supply chain, and there's many parts that go into this. And a, a lot of the lithium, as you're well aware, we we mentioned Chile. It comes from Australia.
1: You're you're absolutely right, Grayson. There's um, a dichotomies of opinion on this between our federal government and the industry. And it's my opinion that this is one where the industry will have to take up their own approach and make it happen, regardless of what the federal government does. I think that there are some good programs that the federal government is trying to roll out. They're trying to fund it through good funding. We had a very good meeting yesterday with the NatBat International, a joint meeting uh, between the Manufacturing Committee and the Recycling Committee. We had some very good presentations that were provided during uh, that joint session describing the different um, rollout of the federal government's plan to deploy money to support the electrification effort. The big problem, Grayson, is that many times our Uh, government officials may not be as up to date on what is required to accomplish a mission than what the industrial sector is. And it's up to us as industry professionals to help educate and train our federal government uh, team to help them understand what the real gotchas are in developing the marketplace. Because truly, truly, we we can electrify, but some period of time, we're going to need help from offshore sources.
0: You mentioned federal government and data, and I think a Powell and the Federal Reserve, because what the Federal Reserve is doing, some people, you can make the argument they're behind, but they're always looking, constantly looking at the data. And when we're looking to electrify America, move to a greener, low-carbon environment, it doesn't seem that we're looking at the data. I'll be very blunt. It seems like you're looking to win political points, not looking at the realities of what has to be done. I love the saying, you can't just go put a roof on a house and build it. You have to lay the concrete and build the foundation. It seems that if we want to transition the economy, we have to build the foundation. And as we look to transition to a green economy, you chair several committees for SE. What role are standards going to play in that transition to electrification? Well,
1: some of the primary standards assure that we have safe and effective products for our constituents and our uh, society, you're right, Grayson. I've got uh, roughly 24 committees at SAE. We cover everything. For, in fact, I got the list and laying in front of me. We cover safety as number one committee. We have a battery testing committee. We have uh, standards for labels and tapes that go into making batteries. The transportation committee has been extremely busy with writing new standards around how you transport and store effectively batteries because this has been one of the key areas where in the transportation and shipping lanes where first responders have to respond to rolled over trucks or trucks that's been involved in crashes how do you safe and effectively handle large quantities of batteries that have been involved in an accident we have uh, the old traditional starting battery uh, technology we can't just throw that out the window because we want to electrify it's a transitory period between now and say 2050 the starting battery committees have to still be active because we still have internal combustion engines uh, that we have to pay attention to. we got a truck and bus committee. We've got a fuel economy and uh, a range committee. Uh, So I could just go down all the list of all 24 of them if you want. But the funny thing about battery technology, it's almost as complicated as a whole car itself in one component. And because... Batteries typically make up somewhere between 35 and 45% of the total content of an electric car in terms of price and some, in some cases even more on weight. It's important for us to recognize that these different value chains that are driving me to create new standard committees are really important to our societal needs because each one of them have a different one. And it even boils down to something as simple as the terminology committee because we're talking about a whole new field of scientific and engineering discipline that we need to get everybody on the same page using this same terminology. During a recent uh, NATBAT meeting on recycling, and it was held at the University of Michigan recently, that we got into the discussion, well, what is recycling? There's like seven different key elements of recycling. That is, the recovery of the product from the field, the disassembly of the product from the field, the shipping and transportation of the product from the field, and then finally, the separation of those materials and putting them into the right processing streams for recycling. So you've got copper, you've got aluminum, you've got electronics, you've got batteries, And finally, you grind up the batteries and get what we call the gray mulch. And then everybody wants to get their hands on that gray mulch because that's where a lot of the precious metals are that we want to recover. And that's where the money lies in most of the battery pack systems. But it's also those other metals that we're getting back from the recycled battery pack systems that are also important because as we look out and project into the future, the tens of thousands of uh, vehicles that are gonna be rolled out on a monthly basis around the world, That copper and aluminum, even though it may not be a scarce material today, my prediction is in the next 10 to 15 years, you're going to see a scarcity of some of those more prominent metals that are used because those same metals are used in the inverter, the motor, the chassis, the headlamp systems, the wiring harnesses, everything that go into electrification. Copper and aluminum, both will be materials that we need to pay attention to and assure that we put those back through the recycling stream.
0: And I'm gonna put a smile on your face with this comment. And then there's the traders that trade on the London Metals Exchange, and the vol and the volatility there. And they're the ones that are gonna control the- where the prices. And there's nothing that the automakers can do. Think about it. If you t- in the old days, traditional, you go to your tier ones, you set a price, you're gonna buy the part for X, you agree to a multi-year contract. And then there's a great term, uh, Javier Blas from Bloomberg, call here come the swashbucklers and they don't care about the price and they're gonna set the price. How is that upsetting or changing the way that the OEMs do business where they cannot control the price of the supply chain? Part of my
1: consulting role, people ask me this question a lot about why do car companies create joint ventures with battery companies? Well, for a couple of reasons. Number one, it typically shields the OEMs from the onerous uh, litigation system we have in the United States with people wanting to sue a car company for a battery problem that occurred uh, that might have caused injury or death. The second reason is the volume, the sheer volume of the raw materials that are going to be used in the vehicle. So let's pick on copper for a minute. In a vehicle, the amount of copper that is used in a battery pack is quite a lot because you've got the copper foil that's used in the battery. You've got the electrical wiring harnesses for the low voltage wiring harness for those that use wired battery management systems. And then you've got copper for the bus bars or you have aluminum for the bus bars. You also pick on aluminum at the same time we're picking on copper because both are used extensively throughout the battery pack. But on the car itself, for light weighting purposes, people are figuring out how to use aluminum in the chassis They are figuring out how to use composite copper and aluminum wiring systems so that you can get a lighter weight vehicle. Now, the car companies are doing this out of protection of their own bottom line, as well as protecting themselves legally with these joint ventures, but also it brings the element of technology development from the battery manufacturer into the uh, umbrella of automobile manufacturers. So you're seeing a lot of running right now between automobile manufacturers partnering with the battery manufacturers in these ways for multiple reasons. But the two primary are for litigation protection, and the second is the massive amounts of material that those companies can buy together. Is It, it swings a bigger club. But it, I cannot address the question, Grayson, of those hoarders of metals and, and that may be reporting up through the uh, London Metal Exchange. They will hoard those metals so that they can dump them on the market, and make a lot of money quickly. <laughs> that's one. That's one. That's one for the sourcing departments that the car companies and the battery manufacturers will have to tackle.
0: We, we recently saw the copper squeeze, and yeah. we're going to see a lithium squeeze at, at some point. And point this an economic perspective: the battery companies are profitable. They have margins, and they spit off cash. And some of their valuations, they could swallow a VW. They could swallow a, a large OEM. If you're in the purchasing department, is that the tables are turned. You're, you're dealing with somebody that says, you know what? I just feel like buying a car company today.
1: That's right. And uh, and in some cases, that is happening. But I can't mention names because I know too much and uh, don't want to get myself in trouble. But uh, clearly, Grayson, you're, you're asking some really good questions. Some I can answer and some I can't but I can give my perspectives, how's that? You know, one one that really fascinates me, Grayson, is that no less than in 2012, worldwide, we had less than 120,000 electric vehicles on the road. By the year 2021, we had 6.6 million cars on the road that were electrified, and of those 6.6, 3.3 million were in China. So China has embraced this quite aggressively for the fundamental reason that if you look at the healthcare within a country, what drives, what drives the taxation of some cultures that have a socialist government? It's because they have to take care of their people. And if you have a lot of healthcare problems associated with air pollution, you're gonna do something to remediate that. And during my tenure in China from 2012 to 2019, I saw a miraculous change in air quality and in pollution because the government were cracking down on pollutants that were devastating to the human health. Clearly, uh, Premier Li Chung uh, made a comment to me in 2015 that I will never forget, that they were losing so many people in the four major metropolitan areas that electrification was something that they had to do in order to cut down on the tax load of how much money was being deployed into taking care of sick people because of air pollution. Uh, that was something that really st- stuck with me during my time in China.
0: While they had to do it, what role did geography play in this? Because China's, for all practical purposes, a lot closer to Australia than the United States. Australia's the dominant domicile for lithium. By 2025, projected to 318,000 metric tons of output. While China today controls 85% of the refining for raw materials. Did the, the Chinese leadership say, there's an opportunity to get, to get these metals. There's an opportunity to, if you want to use the word incubate a battery industry where we can meet our climate goals and we can build a new industry? Was that just the geography played strategically into that hand? Well, clearly the
1: Pacific Rim is rich in many of the natural minerals that are required for making batteries. And Grayson, I see this as a great opportunity if the leadership of the governments of the world would look at it from a different vein. This gives us a better global economic play if they would work collaboratively rather than against each other because geopolitics is there whether we want to accept it or not. That's clear between the U.S. and China right now. It's also clear between China and Australia. So your question has got multiple facets that I can't answer because those are mainly political issues that have to be solved between the country's leadership. And that's something that the technical team has a very difficult time dealing with because as technologists, we look at it and say, what's the problem, boys? We got this material. Why can't we turn it into battery materials? Why can't we all work together in a collaborative way? But it's uh, it, it tends to be geopolitical because of the differences of opinion between governments around our world.
0: Where does South Korea play? So you have LG Chem slash LG Battery Solutions. You have Samsung SDI. You have SK Innovation. It feels now that with the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, they got they kind of got squeezed out, and they're sitting there on an island. They're, they're they sent a delegate. Their ambassador is is, is actively protesting it now. They're, it, with all due respect to South Korea, I feel like they're, they're they have great technology, and they're sitting there on an island. What's their next move from a battery perspective?
1: Well, the reason that they're in a squeeze is a lot of the materials that they build into their batteries is processed through China. And the uh, IRA, it clearly states that any material that are processed in what would be considered an adversarial state cannot use that material. And this is why there was a convening of all the battery manufacturers, at least this is what I read in the media, just like you. Uh, You know, I can only rely so much on uh, how much I can believe what is uh, published, but the understanding is that they had a very important meeting because it kind of stifle, stifles not only the Koreans, but the Japanese car manu- or battery manufacturers in supplying batteries that are made with materials that are processed through China. Because, as I mentioned earlier, somewhere between 70 and 80%, all the minerals that go into making these sophisticated high-energy density batteries are processed
0: through China. Sony had a very large share of the lithium market when they introduced the Handycam and started putting lithium batteries in all of their electronics. When did the Japanese conglomerates, the, the TDKs, the Sonys, the Mitsubishis, the Toshibas, w- they have the balance sheets, their banks are actively funding the transition to electric vehicle fleets, but when did their innovation arms step in and say, we're going to go into the battery space, we were already there once and we did well at it? Well, that, that occurred over a long period of time,
1: Grace. and if you look back in history, a lot of the consumer electronic products that use batteries got their batteries out of China. And so many people have asked me this question. It goes all the way back into early 2000s because China had to develop their supply chain through mining and through processing to establish battery supply for consumer electronics. It wasn't until around 2011 when you had the announcements from Tesla, Tesla, Uh, Nissan, General Motors, where they started putting electric cars out on the road in the United States, that other countries around the world woke up to the fact that, hey, the electrification era is coming back. You know, back in 1997, when they called all the EV1s back in and crushed them and then uh, uh, brought all the uh, Ford Rangers back in from their field trial in the Detroit Edison up in the Detroit area, that the electrification area of the 1990s kind of got squashed because the United States government repealed the CAFE requirements and all the car companies took advantage of it. And you can't blame them for that because at that time we weren't ready for electrification because we didn't have the processing, we didn't have the mining. And guess what? Here we are in 2022, guess what? We don't have the mining and we don't have the processing still. So China took a different they took a different cadence to the, the drum. Uh, they decided because they had the ability to process and to mine that they would take... What they learned from consumer electronics and it, and put the leverage and advantage into putting it into electric vehicles. So my perspective on why China electrified may be different than some of the people that make decisions in Washington.
0: But you had that that hands-on experience. You were there. You you rolled your sleeves up. You went to where you went in China, where there, where there was and there was no infrastructure by the time you went there. And by the time you left, it was wow. It was it was a very large city. Do, do, do you get a, a strong politician that stands up and, and from a and says enough's enough, we need to build lithium refining capacity, we have the and Sea, Governor Newsom of California has called it the Saudi Arabia lithium, do we see, okay, we're going to pull back some environmental regulations, we're going to become energy independent, do we start to see that movement, especially if we get a shift in, in Congress in this upcoming November election? Grayson, I think
1: it depends on the car companies and how they want to architect the batteries that go into their electric vehicles. Obviously, everybody talks about the high energy density batteries that are built with uh, predominantly nickel and cobalt, but there are other electric chemistries that can still serve the purpose at a lower cost with good cycle life called lithium iron phosphate. There were announcements made last year by at least three car, major car manufacturers that those car manufacturers would put lithium iron phosphate batteries into their low range and mid range cars and their lower price cars so that general consumers within that band, if you will, of income could afford electrified vehicles. Uh, So there's different approaches and many of these car companies are looking at these different strategies today to see how they can play in the market without the more expensive materials as well as looking at alternative technologies that are emerging. As I mentioned earlier, there's roughly eight different technologies that I work on on a regular basis that could potentially play a game in in this uh, field.
0: You look at certain cars and I'm gonna use, Tesla as an example, if you ordered a long range Model 3, you you take today, you can flip it for $5,000 more after tax than what you currently paid. So they're, they're holding their value. There's various business models and companies that are coming around that they're leasing these vehicles by the thousands because they believe that the battery will, will hold its value and they're going to get residual out of that. Will lithium iron phosphite batteries, in your opinion, hold their value as much as lithium ion batteries? That's a great question.
1: <laughs> uh, I haven't really given that a lot of thought because there's not enough in the marketplace today that would that is near its end of useful life that will help make that call not even in China. I will make the comment that in the early days of the Chinese deployment, that we used lithium iron phosphate batteries in the public transportation sector for electric buses. We had roughly 190,000 electric buses on the road by the year 2018 in China, just from CATL alone. Uh, BYD had a lot of batteries in uh, buses at that same time. The reason I tell that story is with the right mentality and the right understanding of technology and how it can be applied, you can always address a market with a different technology as long as the mission of what that vehicle is built to use. That LFP battery is also used heavily in energy storage systems for grid support. And when we talked a little while ago about how we improve the grid network by battery support, A lithium iron phosphate battery could work very well in that. But let's not lose sight of the fact that lead acid is still around. Lead is a really good alternative for creating that kind of infrastructure. Flow batteries also could help if we can make the improvements necessary to make it work in that kind of an application.
0: Staying on the bus theme, do we get to the point where a a large global battery manufacturer starts making purpose-built batteries. These ba- say battery A is dedicated for transit fleets. Battery B is for long-range consumer vehicles. Battery C is for small micro-mobility. Did we get to that point? Is that where this is going? Well, it's interesting you bring this up, Grayson. And, and and
1: during my last several months in China, I was fortunate to uh, travel around and see some of our customer base products that our young engineers were helping integrate The same battery pack system that was used in buses was being put into payloaders and excavators. The last week I was in China before I retired, I went to Liogong and drove a 22-ton backhoe and a 20-ton payloader that was fully electrified using the battery systems that my young team designed and built. So to answer your question point blank, absolutely. And this is one of the things that we did inside SAE. We created a committee. That's headed up by one of the guys that helped design those big machines in China. He's now back in the United States, heading up the Committee for Construction and Agricultural Battery Pack Systems.
0: Do you see that construction and agriculture growing from, a, from an electrification standpoint over the next decade?
1: Yeah, just for fun, go look at some of the ag sector's uh, websites and see some of the sophisticated technologies they're putting out there. I just happen to uh, be running across the uh, John Deere, not putting a plug in for John Deere, but I went into John Deere's website and what do I find? A big battery pack that's running alongside a whole series of smaller tractors that has an umbilical cord. It's it's sort of like a a drone, uh, a drone fleet of tractors harvesting or planting a field using a battery pack system that is run through an umbilical to these different tractors that are and these guys are optimizing how these things behave, and they're using geostationary satellite systems for high-precision farming, utilizing autonomous tractors. It's a it's really amazing technology that is, that is being developed. Another one you haven't asked me about, uh, Grayson, is the aerospace industry. SAE is one of the biggest standard riders in the world for aerospace, and the electrification movement for aerospace is phenomenal. About three years ago, I did a study on um, how many different companies around the world were making aircraft for aerospace. There were over 101 different companies at that time that were working on building smaller aircraft with a passenger complement between 6 and 12 passengers that would fly from regional airport to regional airport to regional airport. They don't fly into these great big international airports because the aerospace industry, most of the regional airports are less than 5% utilized. You can literally hop from regional airport to regional airport quicker flying on regional aircraft because they don't go to the high altitudes and they don't burn Jet-A fuel, they run on battery power. So you can go from one airport to another airport to another airport, which is typically closer to Points of destination that you are trying to get to, so it makes a lot of sense for these aircraft industry folks to be working on these smaller regional aircraft that can make these kind of small or short transit trips that can handle a smaller passenger complement rather than flying two to three hundred people in a, an aluminum tube in the air, at forty thousand feet.
0: We're seeing the same thing that you mentioned. We've had we've had several guests that talk about regional airports. One was Mark Moore from Whisper Arrow about regional and those short hops. Do you see from an electrification standpoint, Let's uh, you got the PC-12 planes, very similar, or a common carrier, um, Cape Air. Do you see that's where the electrification is going to start in regional and perhaps so from Boston and Nantucket and the Caribbean, so those the ranges that you're looking at? Sure.
1: The typical range of these kind of aircraft that have the 6 to 12 pasture complement, and I'm not an expert, I'm sure you can find them, are typically in the 500 to 600 kilometer range. As an example, I could go down here to the regional airport just northeast of Indianapolis, hop on a plane and fly to Fort Wayne easily, or I could fly to Ann Arbor. You know, all these all these uh, smaller cities, even, even the big metropolitan areas have smaller regional airports that you can fly into much more conveniently than you can on an international basis. So these big international airports could be reserved for the air traffic associated with international transport of people or long haul flights and let the smaller airports handle the large patches of complement load with electric
0: aircraft. The best part about regional airports is they're not as crowded. There's a lot less stress. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Putting this into context, Bob, you've shed a lot of light on the battery market. We've talked about the geopolitics. We've talked about the refining. We've talked about the chemicals and materials that go into it. Where, in your opinion, is the battery market for electric vehicles heading?
1: Well, a dear friend of mine, Dr. John Warner, who's written two books on uh, electrified uh, vehicles through uh, a book on lithium ion batteries and another one on lithium ion battery packaging, he's working on book number three and four. And uh, he and I, every once in a while, when we do get together, uh, discuss these kind of topics. And I think John and I would probably agree that once you hit around 10% of the product maturation curve of any product in any market, it's a done deal. It's going to it's going to go, right? We're really close to that here worldwide on electrification. As I mentioned a while ago that we're expecting, I think we're going to hit about 20% of global market penetration with electric vehicles by the year 2030. Now... That's about 60% of the target amount that the world would like to see in order to hit the 2050 initiative of zero carbon emissions in the electric vehicle world. We're running a little behind, but it's still moving. And to my to that point, Grace, what I'm trying to say is we will see an acceleration of electrified vehicles if we can get this, the issues solved of material supply chain, get the raw materials. But one that we haven't talked about is the physical building of the factories that build the fat, the batteries. This is something I do on a regular basis is work with companies on trying to help them or coach them on what you have to do to build a factory. Right now, the three predominant pinch points for building a new factory is the structural steel. It's typically a 52 to 54 week lead time right now. And lean up concrete there's a shortage of companies that build the concrete that you use, that are used in building or constructing the lean-up concrete type of facilities. And the third is the roofing materials. The roofing materials is becoming one of the most difficult materials to get your hands on. And it's kind of hard to run a factory if you don't have a roof on it because most equipment and most materials don't like uh, water dripping down on top of it. So I think as we look out into the future, not only do we have to address the infrastructure needs of charging the electric vehicles, but actually building and constructing the battery buildings themselves. You're talking about hundreds, a few hundred battery plants that have to be built in the United States alone in order to meet the high demand by the year 2030 to 2050.
0: Are we seeing battery companies hire supply chain experts that are versed in geopolitics? I think so even though that's not my field of expertise, I've talked to a few of those kind of people. Because as we said earlier, it, it's a global approach to electrification. The world is going electric, but you have to understand as we discussed in this, all the various little nuances. As the world goes electric, what big changes will we see? Will it be in the battery chemistry? Will allow the vehicle to go faster? Will allow the vehicle to charge faster? What big breakthroughs do you see as we go into an all-electric world? Well, being uh, being a scientist and an engineer throughout
1: my entire career, my my degrees were in chemistry and biology and I spent the next 46 years in engineering and international business. I think I can say this with fairly decent accuracy that we're going to see some major breakthroughs in science, specifically on the areas of surface chemistry. Now, why do I say that? When you've got half the scientists around the world working on electrification, which is thousands of people around the planet, working very specifically on surface reactions, whether it's a conductive polymer uh, cathode material, whether it is a graphene aluminum battery, or if it's a new sophisticated lithium sulfur battery that's a lower cost than anything we've ever seen, all these battery technologies, somebody will make a revolutionary breakthrough someday that will change the scope of this market. And this is no different than what happened back in the early days when Thomas Edison discovered the light bulb, right? I I, I like to use the example of a microwave oven when I talk to people. I can remember as a young adult, there were no such thing as a microwave oven. But today, you cannot go into anybody's kitchen, anybody's break room that does not have a microwave oven for heating your food because it didn't exist. 30 years ago, right? So any new market adoption of a technology is gonna make breakthroughs. The old microwave oven was not even close to what we have today. The, the Today's microwave oven, higher power, programmable, not indifferent than that of what we're doing in the electric vehicle market today.
0: I like that. The thing that, I'll, and I'll put this in, in humanity standpoint, when you buy Legos today for children, they have electric vehicles with chargers. To me, that was a very big, not scientific. It was like, okay, this is really coming. It's it's now in children's toys. And Bob, as we look to wrap up this super super insightful conversation, what would you like our listeners to take away with them? Because I like to say this, sir, you gave a master class on the current state of the battery market. So thank you.
1: Well, thank you for the opportunity, Grayson. I uh, I feel. My role in the industry as the chairman of the Battery Standards Steering Committee for SAE, which we've got 24 committees, as well as my role as CTO at NatBat International, it's my responsibility as one of the industry leaders to get the message out of where the trigger points or the key points are for not only our industry experts, but also for our governments around the world, not just the US government, but the governments around the world, that if they did work together collaboratively we will make a, a, a major inroad into what people call global warming because as we increase electrification and figure out how to make these materials with less carbon intrusion, because making, a, making an automobile is fairly carbon intensive uh, process today. If we can figure out how to take the carbon out of it, we will have better uh, effective mobility around the world with less carbon pollution in fact, uh, improve the quality of life for all of us around the planet, not just in the United States. And one of the things that sort of gripes me in, in talking with people that don't really understand the mathematics behind all this, there was one really good paper that I read recently that says the United States contributes 12% of the global pollution. So when you stop and think about it, if you de- if you take just our country alone and decrease our pollution, it doesn't fix the rest of the world. There were... I think quoted in that article, 127 countries around the world that do not even have a remediation plan for their carbon intrusion. So One of the things that we as an advanced society should do is focus not only on our own country, but help those countries collaboratively to reduce their carbon footprint as well. Because without their help, we will not be successful. So. Not to be a soothsayer or anything, Grayson, because I'm a very optimistic man and I've got eight wonderful grandchildren that I want to protect the planet. We need to do a better job of working with our other comrades on the planet to achieve a better solution for carbon reduction and a better planet for our future generations to come. Because we were fortunate to grow up in a time period where the planet is such a beautiful place to live.
0: Reducing carbon is a global issue. We all want a stellar environment. Today is tomorrow. Tomorrow is today. The future is carbon-free electric. Bob, thank you so much for coming on SAE Tomorrow Today. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Be sure to join us next week as we speak with leaders from Honeywell and Denzel, traditionally known as leading suppliers of reliable motors for electric cars. These two companies are collaborating to develop electric propulsion systems for electric and hybrid aircraft. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.